Hello, and welcome to the Hockey Assist, a basketball podcast. Here, we give basketball fans a deeper perspective on the game by connecting what's happening on the court to the sport at large. My name is Nolan Cope, and here, as always, is my wonderful co-host, Riley Gaucher. What's up, Mr. Cope? I am, I am so thrilled to be talking to you today, um, because I actually know the answer to that question, where usually, you know, I'm asking to see how you're doing and see, see what's up, but, but we have a hockey assist exclusive uh, that I, I'd love for you to share with our audience, if, if you would, because I think that is kind of the answer to that question of, of what is exactly up. Yeah. So uh, as uh, Riley is alluding to this weekend, I was fortunate enough to get engaged to the love of my life. We've uh, been dating for just over three years, and uh, I asked her if she would be silly enough to spend the rest of her life with a, with a guy like me. And, and she said yes, and I could, could not be more excited over the moon. It's, it's, a, it's a surreal feeling, but it feels great. Our audience can't see me, but I'm, I'm grinning like an idiot listening to you talk about this. Um, I'm so, so happy for both of you. I, I know you're, I guess, fiance, I have to say now. Um, actually, maybe technically a couple, like a week or two, probably longer than I knew you, really. Um, so it's, it's really cool to see where you guys have come and, and now, you know, to, to have been at least a tiny little part of that journey. And I'm, yeah. I'm so excited for you guys. It's, it's, it just, it just made my whole week when you sent that text and let me know what was up. Yeah. Riley has actually, uh, been, uh, there from day one with this relationship, uh, back when Riley and I worked together and well, actually the three of us, me, Riley, and, uh, my now fiance, Jessica, all worked together uh, a few years ago back in college. And I remember like after late night shifts, uh, we'd all go to Taco Bell for some bad food celebration. And uh, Riley and I would just kick it in my car afterwards. And I'd talk about this crush that I had on this girl that Riley was also friends with and we'd like talk about it and scheme and uh, (laughs) lo and behold uh, just a a few a few years after that after Riley got the the front seat to my uh, inner inner thoughts and and feelings at the very beginning here we are at the an engagement (sighs) Which is which? Not the end. It's just the just the beginning of, of something new. I, I actually, you know, regarding what you were saying, I have to say today I was thinking about. I think I remember specifically where I were when you told me, like how you felt about Jessica. I I think we were across from Kennedy Library. You were in your car and you were going to drop me off or, or take me back to the studio or something. And I don't know why that, like that specific location is in my head and connected to this conversation i don't know if that rings any bells with you but i just thought that was 
that's crazy that, that I, you know, at least my brain has convinced me that I, you know, have a memory of a specific spot for that very specific, specific and, and, you know, prophetic conversation. Totally. Yeah. It, it was, uh, it was really, really quite the, the journey and, uh, it was quite the, the whirlwind finish this weekend, but we made it and, and yeah, I, so, I'm so, well, so let's, let's, uh, unless you have anything else you wanted to add there, let's, let's get into this weekend. What was the, what was the game plan? Like what kind of plays did you draw up? You know, give us the, the play by play of the situation, please. Yeah. If you, if you would, sir. So, uh, on Friday, the most recent Friday that happened, we're currently recording this on, uh, Tuesday, July 27th, United States time. And on Friday, I, I had spent about a week doing ring research, trying to find the best places on uh, the island of where, where we are uh, to find a, a reputable place where I knew that I was not going to be ripped off diamond-wise. Found my location, <laughs> went in, and, and secured, the, secured the bag, secured the ring, so to say, on Friday. And after doing so, I uh, made reservations at a nice-ass resort for Wednesday of this week. And then the very next day, Saturday, Jessica and I were going to go on a shopping spree. And uh, I, we were going to like make sure to get like a nice outfit that I was going to encourage her to wear on, on Wednesday. And she mentioned mm-hmm. to me when we, were about, when we were getting lunch before the mall at around noon... She was like, oh, no, like the weather's going to be really bad next week. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, there's like a 90% of thunderstorms starting on Wednesday. And I'm like, oh, no, that's the day that I set up for this whole this whole thing to go down. And so we go to the mall and I step outside for a moment and I called the resort and I was like, hey, is there any chance that I could move my reservation to tonight? And they were like, <laughs> tonight? And I was like, yeah, tonight. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, w- we can do that. So I was like, great, thank you. We go back inside. Uh, I, I, we got Jessica the, the nice dress. And I was like, all right, we got to cut this shopping spree short. She was like, what? Like, why? And I was like, you got to trust me. We went home. I packed up all the stuff. Uh, we drove out to this resort. We got checked in at about... 3.30, so about three and a half hours after I found out about the incoming inclement weather next week. And uh, we checked in to, we had this like private villa with like a little private pool there. And uh, at a, by about 4 or 4.15, I'd set up some cameras and got like into this little shallow part of the pool and told her to come out. And oh, so there's at, footage of this. Yeah, there, there's footage somewhere, ar- archived. <laughs> And uh, I asked her to marry me and she said, yes. And uh, it was 2 a.m. United States time. So everyone we knew and wanted to tell was asleep, which was actually nice. (laughs) We had a few hours where we could just kind of live in the moment of it. Like just the, the two of us and then called our family, sent some messages off to our closest friends and, uh, had a nice dinner, nice breakfast the next morning, and here we are. 
I, I, I love that so much. Um, my, my question then is, it sounds like this kind of came together pretty quickly. Is that not, is that not the case or? Yeah. It, I, I, between when I started looking for the ring and buying the ring took about a week and a half. And then it took about a day for my plan to go horribly wrong and then horribly right. So it all, it all was a, like I said, a whirlwind finish, but, uh, it, it all came together. All worked out, no? It worked out. She was plenty surprised and enjoyed the whole nice. thing. And it was, uh, it was a, a really magical little, uh, weekend. Yeah. How, how stressed were you, you know, going into this and whatnot, um, like setting the weather aside, right? Like, right. I, I was not stressed about what the answer was going to be. She and I have talked mm, about marriage good, before good, yeah. and like planned out like w- how we would want to spend the rest of our lives together. But Jessica is a traditionalist. She is a traditional romantic. And so I was mm, definitely mm-hmm. nervous about the whole proposal and the context around it to be uh, impressive. I was, I was hoping that it would meet her standards because she'd been <laughs> dreaming about being proposed to her whole life, which is a lot to live up to. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. My God. And, but luckily, uh, she, uh, she loved it, or so she told nice. me. And so <laughs> it was, it was a, a nice resolution to that little, little moment. That's fantastic. What what were uh, well, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to think what the like best. What was her like initial reaction? Right? Was it you know, was it like the hand on the face? Was it the was it the tears? Was it like the you know scream? Like what? Give me the give me the yeah. Set the scene. Uh, I guess would you? It, it started with kind of like little like hands crossed like around the around the waist area sort of thing, and then when I popped mm. the ring open she did the whole the classic hands over the mouth yeah nice thing nice. and then yeah it was there was definitely some leaky faucets for about an hour and a half after that definitely some uh, pretty, pretty consistent tears and so it it was definitely a a super emotional uh in a good way moment for us that's amazing i'm i'm so stoked for you guys what um so like who was the first person you told uh the first person we told was were our families we sent the messages off to uh to our families and uh we're able to call them pretty early in the morning nice uh that morning and then uh so they they were obviously our our first immediate thoughts but we also got to talk to our grandparents and we just kind of like shot some texts off to people who have like been through our with our relationship through like thick and thin so to speak so uh i sent the message off to you and to some of our other closest friends and uh eventually it started spreading its way onto facebook uh from our parents and whatnot and and word got out a little bit i love that i love that i guess i'm now i'm putting together the time on my head because when you when you texted me, I was completely shocked because we had just recorded a podcast either that night or the the day. I don't know. Can you you know where was 
and you gave you gave no inclination because I guess Jessica was in the room with you, so obviously you couldn't you couldn't say anything. But I, I when I got that, t- I was like, this came out of nowhere, at least from my perspective. Yeah, it uh, I it was it was hard trying to like keep the secret from her because I'd like oh, I yeah. normally want to oh, yeah. like tell everything to her, and normally would want to like tell all my friends about it, but because of like where we are, whenever I'm talking to my friends, I'm here in my apartment and she's normally here as well. <laughs> so it was, um, in order to keep it a secret, I had to keep it a secret from, uh, just about everyone. And I feel kind of weird, yeah. like sending everyone a text, like, Hey, I'm going to do this. Cause then it like starts to build yeah, like yeah. too much hype, too much, like in anticipation, I wanted it to, well, to be one of those sort of like happy surprises sort of things. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, I certainly appreciated that part. And then also like, you know, you run the risk of getting discovered, right? Like somehow that, that text comes through on your laptop or something, somebody responding and she's like, oh, what's that? Was, was there any close calls like that? Or, you know, when did she, when do you think she started to realize what was going on? Uh, no close calls along the phone. Normally we're, we're very like free with sharing our phones with each other. Like we know each other's passwords. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, hop yeah, on my yeah. phone and Google that. Cause your phone's across the room. But I was very certain to like keep my phone away from her for the whole week. Cause I was like texting <laughs> nice. my parents and, uh, in touch with her family and whatnot. Uh, she definitely had a little bit of an idea as like the day progressed that like, Oh, he just bought me a nice dress. We're <laughs> driving out somewhere mysterious. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What could be going on here? So she, she definitely, ain't no dummy. yeah, she she's incredibly smart, much smarter than I am. And so she had a, I couldn't keep it a a full blown secret like that, especially because I had to like flip things around, like at the at the flip of a switch. I, yeah. I was less smooth than I was initially anticipating but it, it worked out and that's that's so awesome i feel like i'm just so so stoked for you guys and y'all seem y'all seem over the moon which is exactly what i would hope for thank you man yeah then i i, I love i love getting to finally s- spill the details to you riley told me to withhold the details so that we could do the full uh exclusive here on the podcast so to all the hockey assist fans we have out there uh you know content content before everything right content before everything but we know that this is not a uh romance podcast this is a basketball podcast and between are you sure you're sure you don't want us to like pivot we could i don't know change change that the hockey kiss i how do we I, i'm gonna be honest i feel like i know more about uh jessica might contest this but i feel like i know more about sports than actually that's not true romance is <laughs> romance is a is a wonderful thing that i do enjoy talking about so for anyone out there looking uh, yeah, to start I would a romance say, podcast based on our 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 conversations and and your history i'd say you're pretty you're pretty damn good at this stuff too Thank you. But this is a basketball podcast. And between yes, the, la- yes. the last time that we were able to talk, we last time we talked uh, for the podcast was just before game six. And we have new NBA champions. Yeah. And the yeah, Milwaukee yeah. Bucks, uh, Bucks and six. Uh, <laughs> the, the prophecy as foretold by Brandon Jennings many years ago 
And that's what yeah, been like one almost. of my favorite things about the uh, the celebration of the championship is I didn't know how important Brandon Jennings was to the city of Milwaukee or the Bucks fan base, but he was in the parade. He was giving speeches. Yeah. And he's been sitting courtside. Like this guy has been heavily featured in the Bucks championship process, and I didn't know that he was that beloved of a figure in the franchise. I'll be honest, I didn't either, and I I pay pretty close attention to you know Bucks Twitter and uh, Bucks podcast and whatnot, and so uh, that was a real you know quote unquote bandwagon fan reveal moment was where I was like, oh, what is this Bucks and Six thing, and why is Brandon Jennings involved and and whatnot? I thought it was it was really cool and like, you know, really like a positive version of fan service, right. To have him at the parade and, and have him, you know, involved and in the locker room and stuff. I, I hope, you know, no players out there are kind of like bitter that this guy who didn't do anything for this present team, you know, was involved in celebration. Cause I think that was just a cool, cool gesture. And then I'm glad that they were able to exercise that demon, which apparently, you know, has been going on since the early 2000s of, of the prediction that he made and, and completely got, got turned around when they were swept, I believe in that series, um, unfortunately. So yeah, no, and what a, what a banger of a series we ended up with, right? Like I, I there was talk at the very beginning, you know, a little bit driven by market uh, bias and, and people's, you know, feelings like we didn't have really have enough superstar talent in this, in the series that this was going to be one of those worst finals of the last 20 years or something ridiculous. And by the end, I think a lot of people, especially those who were neutral or rooting for the Bucks, could agree that the the drama and the performances and, and the way that everything played out was top notch. And honestly, one of my favorite finals that I've watched, especially um, even when, you know, without having a, a really concrete vested interest in, in either team, I, I thought it was just a, it was a fascinating and, and, dynamic and you know really really truly special six games i don't know how you felt Nolan. yeah i mean it's it's definitely i i think what this playoffs uh showed us is that we have been living in a very uh specific generation of basketball for the last 15 years and that is the lebron generation you know and uh, the LeBron generation, I think, is special because it like overlapped with Kobe and Tim Duncan in really meaningful ways, connecting the uh, early 2000s to the LeBron era. And then it also uh, connected with Kawhi, starting with the 2014 um finals and then of course with the uh four straight Cavs Warriors finals to introduce us to Steph and Kevin Durant on the on the biggest stage so the current generation of NBA superstars you can all kind of point back to LeBron's umbrella in some way like the the last era has all kind of been one era of the last 20 years of basketball and this playoffs was everyone's saying we are in a new era now yeah lebron probably hasn't had his last moment in the sun Kawhi is can still be a game shattering force steph curry is still one of the best basketball players on the on the planet kevin durant still one of the best players on the planet they're not done but we're no longer in the same era that we were 
Giannis is here now. Chris yeah. Middleton is now a legit superstar. Devin Booker. Cash money. Devin, Devin Booker is now one of the premier scorers in the league. DeAndre Ayton, Luka Doncic, like Donovan Mitchell, all of these guys played really important parts in these playoffs. And so even though the established superstars, maybe Chris Paul aside, weren't able to be present at the very end, it shows that the league is beginning to move in a new direction and that new direction is in wonderful hands. Yeah. I think that literally the last three words you said for me were my major takeaways, you know, in wonderful hands, right. The, the league, the, the narrative of the sport, the, just the game itself because, because of Giannis, right. And because of who he is as a player. And I don't, I don't want this to turn into an entire Giannis chasm because we can do that at any point. And, and, I might go on for a couple hours if, if given the opportunity, because um, I just I, I freaking love that man. But I think that was that was the cool thing for me to see was right. Is, you know, he he is such a pure personality, and and I think we can say that for certain because he's so open about who he is and how he feels and and how he conducts himself on the public stage. Right, he he does not at least it, it appears to to hold anything back, um, and I think that's something that everyone respects. And so it was just really really gratifying for me as someone who, who's been a fan of his for a long time. I, I might even say that if forced to choose, it's very close for me between him and Steph about who you know my favorite player is um, as just a personality and, and as a, you know, completely unique stylistic kind of person and having watched Giannis since he was a scrawny kid um, with the Bucks. And so it was, it was great for me to see just the universal applause and, and a plume that he he got right because i think he deserves it and i think it's it's good for the sport and and there's so much positivity too about you know the, what this meant for small markets and what it meant that someone who who plays with an authenticity and, and conducts himself with an authenticity and a commitment you know to just to trying hard and, and not really caring about winning you know at all costs right like he's he's one of the people who's very committed to doing it his own way and doing it in the manner that he he chose, right? Staying in the city with the teammates that Chris Middleton, he, they, they basically came up at the exact same time. They both have been on the Bucks for eight years. And I read some great stories about how they kind of were lead decision makers and making sure that Bud got hired. And, you know, they, they evaluated that future together, which I thought was really heartwarming. And so just all, all of that, you know, and the, the organic nature with which this Bucks team rose around Giannis and, and steadily improved and adding uh, another great guy and Drew Holiday. I just, all of this, you know, I think it's, it's fun and, and rewarding when, when things are easy to root for. And it was cool to see the public show so much enthusiasm for a guy who, who totally earned it. Right. I don't know if you want to talk about that 50 point performance and history and whatnot, but I think just, you know, this whole finals was, was special and, and memorable and, I'm just so happy for him. Yeah. Uh, we we talked a lot about the finals last week. Yeah, and the true, impacts true, true. the impacts of this finals are, I think, going to reverberate a lot moving forward for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of which you were just touching on right there, that like this is proof that the mercenary style of building an NBA team is not the only way to compete for finals. And I think that's going to be like a really important lesson for a lot of teams here where like 
LeBron and the way they built the Cavs uh, throughout this last decade, LeBron and how they built the Lakers through this last decade, the Kawhi Leonard to uh, Toronto. Obviously, a lot of people will make the argument of Kevin Durant to the Warriors, but the, I think the Warriors' core buildup was uh, a lot a lot different to make that a, a totally different situation. I think that's going to bring a little, a lot of legitimacy back towards that title path, but thanks to the NBA being a 365 hmm. day sport and also due to the uh, fast forwarded schedule that COVID forced onto the league this year, the finals ended last week and the NBA draft is in two days. Yeah, yeah. And free uh, agency I, I starts less. Wall. Yeah, free agency starts less than a week the, after that. I want to break the fourth wall and say that was a great segue. But uh, yes, yes, it, it's time to move on, as as you so eloquently put. Uh, the future of the league is coming, and and ready or not, here we go. Right. So we want to take this opportunity, you know, before the draft to kind of talk about some some big picture draft stuff you know i'm i've looked at a couple players and, and watched just their highlight reels which obviously doesn't make me qualified at all to speak on any of this um but i'm i'm don't know how much film you've seen nolan or, or you know whatnot but i think we're also going to get into some of the the kind of general trends and opinions we have about the draft if that if that works yeah yeah as as i alluded to a little bit at the beginning of last week i did not see this coming for myself, but have kind of evolved into a little bit of a draft geek hmm. in that, like, I sort of, I enjoy tracking the various big boards across my most trusted websites and listening to the uh, draft opinions of prospects. I love the videos that J. Kyle Mann does for The Ringer. I worship at the altar of Kevin O'Connor uh, I think uh, Joe Varden has some good stuff over at the Athletic. The Athletic has a lot of uh, high quality Sam draft Vecini. stuff. Sam Vecini. Sam I don't know Vecini. if you've ever seen seen his his draft guides every year. Yeah, hundred thousand words he writes about literally every draftable prospect. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and so the we are not here to provide a big board or a mock draft for you all because uh, the internet has a wealth of information on there from people who are paid the big bucks to write these uh, intense hundred thousand word features on these prospects. What we are here to uh, talk about today as we always do with the hockey assist is to take a little bit of that, bird's eye view uh specifically we're going to try to talk a little bit about uh patterns that we have seen and found in the draft in general to what what can lead to a successful draft for teams before getting into uh, a few prospects that we like and maybe dislike and uh, finally, at the end, maybe make uh, make a few predictions because uh, we need to actually apply some of the principles that we are going to preach here. And this is one of my one of my favorite things to talk about because avid sports fans like you and I, Riley, 
we love to pretend that we would be a better general manager than half of these guys out there that are literally paid millions of dollars to do so. So now, now's the time to, to advertise our worth as, as general managers, what, what we could do for, for a franchise with our, with our opinions on the draft. Fantastic. That's a fantastic introduction. So I, I think, the place I want to start and I want to pose this question to you because usually I go first and I think it's, it's time that you, you started this off. One of the major questions I think in the draft is, is upside versus fit, right? It's, it's best player available versus immediate production. It's, it's where do you end up on the spectrum? And so no one, I want to pose this question to you. Is there a, you know, a theory you have about what the, the, the superior strategy is in terms of those two kind of dynamics and, and how would you conduct a draft, let's say for, you know, a team at the top of the lottery, a team in the middle where they're, you know, kind of aimless. Um, the, the, I can't remember the word, you know, stuck in, stuck in the middle. Uh, and then also at the, the very bottom of the draft, right. Where you've conceivably just made the playoffs and done quite well and are, are looking to add talent. You know, where do you, where do you see that? Yeah. So I will, I will give you my boring answer first before I come in with uh, my actual like gut instincts in this. The answer that no one wants, wants to hear that does not get any headlines. On oh, what's better, oh, don't say it. What's better fit or uh, upside is it depends. Oh God. You know, and, <laughs> okay, and because okay. you're, you're not wrong, but it, okay. you, it, it's important for a team to take a look at the pieces that they currently have to work with and how the player that they are drafting could work with those pieces. Okay. So it totally, totally depends on each specific team's situation. Like, Obviously, like with this year's draft, things are a lot different for the Pistons and the Rockets at picks one and two than it even is for uh, the Cavs at pick number three. We'll get into that in a little bit. Now, boring answer of it depends aside. I personally have a, a very strong direction that I always lean in this conversation. I lean very strongly into the fit category. Oh, oh, interesting. Oh, this is spicy. Good. Okay. And, and I, I will, I will tell you why it's I'll, because if I'm drafting someone, especially if I'm in the lottery, my team's success is going to be dependent on whether the person that I draft makes my team better. You know? And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. whenever I see the, the phrase next to someone's name, Oh, this will be, this prospect will be a bit of a project that scares the living shit out of me because that means that that player is not going to be able, like, unless they like are, a miracle of coachability, which most projects aren't, then they are not going to be able to make their team better for two or three years at most. And at the least, 
And two or three years in a in the NBA can be a lifetime. And could totally like alter like how that player shapes himself mentally, how his teammates begin to shape with him, how the league perceives him, how the media perceives him. And so many projects can eventually carve out roles for themselves as uh, useful uh, NBA players. But so many of the, so much of that happens at their second location. They're humbled at their first location. If things don't go perfectly right there, the projects need things to go perfectly right for them to be successful in their very first situation. And so with projects scaring me, what do I, what do I look for? My question that I ask myself about a prospect is, does he make his teammates better? Okay. And you can go down the list and you can start uh, listing, ah, like hustle defense, like playmaking abilities, but all these things are so abstract. I'm wondering, does he make his teammates better? And the guys who make their teammates better at the college level tend to make their teammates better at the NBA level. And it's, it's, it's just a, a fact. And so how does someone make their teammates better? I think in today's NBA, you cannot make your teammates better without being good at shooting. If you are not a threat from the outside, the whole offense is going to get mucked up. Just ask Russell Westbrook, one of the best point guards of the last 10 years and has always struggled to find team success, which is what I'm looking for as a general manager. But of course, beyond just shooting, I want to look at the prospect's motor. Do they work hard? Do they hustle? Because those guys have a chance, have a higher chance of improving at the next level. Guys like DeAndre Ayton, who did not have a high motor coming into the NBA, evolving into having a high motor, that doesn't happen unless he ends up in Monty Williams' system with Chris Paul on his team which is like the ideal scenario for a low motor project guy. So I'm looking for, does he make his teammates better? Can he shoot? And what is uh, he like, what's his motor like as a uh, player and a person? That, that was a fantastic answer. And before we kind of dig in to some of those things, I have to stop you because as a Chris Paul hater or, you know, a begrudging, offer begrudging respect to Chris Paul, but I, I more or less despise his personality on the court, as I think we've talked about on this podcast before. I I am I could not let it go by for you to give all the credit about DeAndre's progress to Chris Paul because his defense, as has been pointed out by a lot of smarter people than I, uh, between his first year and his second year, which both those seasons happened before Chris Paul came to the league, showed a massive improvement. And I think that was purely on him realizing that it was critical for him to, you know, to, to play in this league, to be a good defender. And then Monty Williams, as you mentioned, and, and the organization there for getting him the skill set and the teaching and, and the practice that he needed to, to improve there. Um, Absolutely. Because- I, I do not want to have the mistake made that I'm giving Chris Paul the credit for the DeAndre Ayton renaissance. Okay. I think okay, you, good. you have to give him some. Some, for sure. But, you, but yeah, DeAndre Ayton did make important changes. Monty Williams, James Jones, the organization gave him the tools needed to be successful. And then Chris Paul kind of came in and uh, threw the exclamation point on there. Totally, totally. All right. So now moving on to your other points. 
when you first started talking, I thought, you know, this is a position that I completely and utterly disagree with. But by the end, you, you were starting to make a lot more sense in my head. And there are even parts of that that I, that I, that I fully believe myself. Um, I think the part where we disagree is I think that teams that draft for fit and fit, meaning how do they fit with our current coach, our current system, the values and whatnot of the organization. And when you use that as the, the number one decider in, in your draft decision-making, which is something that my team and the Warriors have, have made or have used recently, and it, it's bit them in the ass with a player like Jacob Evans and, and maybe even to some extent, James Wiseman, you know, thinking that, you know, the person's emotional intelligence and, and professionalism, like while entirely important, don't always make you a successful basketball player and you can be a successful basketball player without those things. And so I think seeing those kind of recent examples and, and then also, you know, you can, you can just go down the line of, of people taking, you know, high lottery picks because they, they were projectable in this system. They were projectable, you know, positional scarcity, right? Or positional overlap. You say, oh, we've already got X player. And so we're not going to take Y. I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with examples here. Uh, and I should have done more research. So apologies for that. But, you know, I, I think they're classic examples and throughout their history, right? And those are the, the decisions that make you go, damn, when you look down five or six or seven years in the future. And you also use the word projects and, and you know, really being concerned about that. And I fully understand that. And I, I think where we agree strongly is that shooting is one of those things that I think it's really hard to teach, right? We've heard success stories of Kawhi. We've heard success stories uh, of Lonzo, you know, improving his shot and, and his mechanics with uh, the shot doctor that they have in New Orleans, you know, Chip England with the Spurs has worked some miracles. But I think those instances are so few and far between that I personally believe that the most scary line in anyone's, you know, draft bio or draft mock draft kind of description is that, you know, if he, if he can shoot, because I just think that, you know, we, we, I believe we talked about the value of shooting on this podcast. And if we haven't, that's, that's a whole podcast that we could go into. Right. But like, like you said, it's the most important thing right now. It is, it, it just it flatly, it is to me. And so, and with how difficult it is, right? Like there's, there's how many people in the NBA are trying to get in the NBA and how few of them, I don't know, I want to say less than 10 ever, you shoot better than 40% from three on significant enough volume to matter, right? Like it's, it's, it's a really freaking hard skill and it matters so much. And I just think that the idea that, oh, we can fix his shot. If he fixes his shot, if he changes this mechanic, if he cleans this up, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, he takes a, too big of a dip or, or right? Like if, if the core, the skeleton of your shot is okay, I think that's one thing. But, you know, if somebody's got a broken jump shot, how many times have we really seen that turn around into a, a legit threat, a legit weapon? And so that's a part where I go, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. But to bring it back to the point about projects, uh, we talked about Giannis, right? He was drafted 15th. And he was a project. He was playing in the second division in Greece, if I remember correctly, right? Like he was literally all arms, legs. He was incredibly projectable and he had a lot of great traits, which is something that we'll get to in a second um, about my kind of core belief. But I think for me, I, I've come to the realization that I think teams should basically draft for upside every single time because the draft to me is about lottery tickets for a top five player. 
right? Like the, the NBA is, we, you know, we talked about the LeBron generation and you mentioned four or five guys who have basically decided the last decade of championships. LeBron, Giannis, Steph, Kawhi. Am I, am I forgetting anyone? Like Not really. Who, right? Yeah, those, Kevin Durant, those are the Kevin guys. Durant, Kevin Durant, sorry. That is exactly the person that I was forgetting. Those five people have, have basically dictated the league because that's how this game works. And so I think that's the reason the process is a thing, right? That's the reason people tank is you want that, that lotto ticket. And so I understand that you've got to fill needs and you've got to get service of rotation players, but at some, some level, like I want teams even deep in the lottery because we've seen a Paul George go 13. We've seen a Donovan Mitchell go 13. And I think those guys maybe are not top five level, but they, they matter, right? Those are all NBA potential players. And so I think I, if I was a GM or, you know, if I'm rooting for a team, I want my team to take swings as much as they freaking can. What say you to that? All right. I love it. I love it. Let's, let's, let's dig in here because you are correct in that every NBA team in order to be a, a championship winning team needs that guy needs that guy who can influence championships. And you go back every decade of the NBA, there's always a handful of those guys. In the 2000s, it was Kobe, Shaq, and Tim Duncan. In the 90s, it was Michael Jordan and Hakeem Olajuwon. In the 80s, it was Isaiah Thomas, Larry Bird, and Magic Johnson. Right? You go back every decade, there's just a handful of these guys. Okay? And so teams need that guy but since there's only so few of those like all realm shaking talents out there uh and normally it's pretty clear who those guys are going to be in every draft right then like you absolutely need to secure that person that you believe can carry your team from uh, a regular middle-of-the-pack team towards uh, the all-time great teams that win championships. And now I'll, I'll, I'll give an example here for why I think that can't always be the case. You can't always draft for... Uh, upside because when you're I'll, I'll give I'll give two two examples really one from the recent past one from uh this year I think even though it's been declared dead multiple times I think the process is officially dead we have reached the ceiling of the process era seven for the third time for the for the oh, third okay, or fourth actually, or fifth time the process oh so you're talking ceiling okay okay Yes, because Ben Simmons is allergic to playoff fourth quarter basketball. Joel Embiid is asked to do too much on a body that can't hold up for an entire season. And Jalil Okafor and Nerlens Noel, the other two crown jewel pieces from the process, are backup bigs on other teams. They drafted centers three drafts in a row. Even if Nerlens Noel and Jalil Okafor ended up being all-star talents, as alongside with what Joel Embiid is, they can only start one center at a time. And then Ben Simmons, the other guy, 
was one of those, if he develops a shot, he will be the next LeBron James. And then he never developed his shot. And the Sixers have proved that they are not going to be able to get out of the second round in the Eastern Conference. Not an Eastern Conference that has uh, Giannis. Not an Eastern Conference that has Kevin Durant. Apparently not even an Eastern Conference that has Trey Young. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so we've yeah. talked about... I'd argue with that. We've talked about the Hawks here uh, on, on this podcast where they drafted their guy. And they said, Trey Young is our guy. And then the rest of their draft picks made by Travis Schlenk have been to support that guy. Were, were Kevin Herter and DeAndre Hunter the best possible options in the draft uh, at the time that they were drafted? Probably not. But they are the exact type of guys that the Atlanta Hawks needed in order to be a successful team around Trey Young. Let's quickly check out this year's top three in the draft. Okay. The Detroit Pistons have uh, Jeremy Grant solid. Killian Hayes is an unknown. Uh, Sadiq Bey uh, was, was uh, a huge revelation for them as a big, uh, I believe Isaiah Stewart, their other big man rookie last year. Had a good year. Had, had a good year. But they don't have anyone who's so good that you shouldn't draft the best possible player available, right? They, they have good, good potential in a lot of spots, but no, they don't have like their lockdown player of the future. So they should draft the highest upside in the draft, who they are going to, Cade Cunningham. The Rockets at second overall have uh, my illegitimate son, Christian Wood, as uh, their as a building block for the future. People who know me know that I've been on the Christian Wood train uh, for a very long time, and he's a good power forward. They have nothing else that is certain for the future. Jay Sean Tate could be a good rotation player, but nothing else. They should also fall into the drafting the highest possible upside. They need to start taking those swings to figure out who their number one all-NBA guy is going to be. Jalen Green, he's that guy in this draft. You go down to the third pick, you go down to the Cavs. I know I've been talking a lot, so I'll, I'll wrap this up here in a minute. The Cavs have two guards on their team who are ball-dominant guys. Drafting another ball-dominant guy like Cade Cunningham or Jalen Green would create a horribly awkward situation in Cleveland. Colin Sexton, assuming that he uh, isn't traded to the Knicks or whoever else takes him. If you were to have Sexton, Garland, and one of either Cunningham or Jalen Green, you are going to stunt the development of all three of those guys because the ball can only be in so many hands, right? And so that would be a situation where they it's a dream for them, for Evan Mobley to fall because he can actually fit in with the core that they are developing. He could fit in as a floor-stretching big. So the difference for me between the Pistons and the Rockets is they don't have enough on their current roster that would tell them, dissuade them from uh, going against uh, drafting for upside. But a team like the Cavs is a great example of drafting for upside and not for fit could potentially damage all of their products in the long run. 
totally. And so I, I, I see your, your point about damaging fit and damaging growth. And I think that's an incredibly valid point and incredibly complicated bit of calculus to solve, right? Where it's, you know, you want to get more talent in, but at what point are you depreciating your current assets to make them harder to unload? And all that being said, I vehemently disagree with your assessment of the cab's quote unquote core. I, I think to me, Larry Nance Jr. is the best player on that team right now in terms of winning basketball, right? In terms of, of making a team that much better in the places where it matters, in, in the situations against the teams that it matters. And so, yeah, maybe that's a ridiculous halt take. And, you know, maybe Kevin Love's calf eventually heals itself and he proves that, that wrong, right? But I personally don't have any faith and then, you know, mark this down. And I'd love to be proven wrong in four years. I'd, I'd love for Colin Sexton or Darius Garland to, to lead the Cavs back to the promised land. But I just don't think either of those guys, you know, is, is ever going to do it. And so for me, I say, screw it. Add, add a third guard. I don't care because neither of those guys to me have shown that they're worth protecting their development, that it's worth saving, you know, touches for them, right? I, I, I I have the sense that that Green and or Suggs, if you know those are the two kind of guard who might be available at three for them. If either of those guys were available, I would I would personally rate them higher than Garland and Sexton in terms of winning basketball and in terms of being able to do you know things on both sides of the floor, right? And, and play make at, at a high level. I, I have to admit I I can't tell the difference between those two. Um, in, in, in my head, but I, I, I just know that, you know, where have they taken the Cavs? Not even, not even to like, you know, actual wins, but have they shown that much growth in, in the skill set required, right? Like the playmaking, the other stuff. So for me, the Cavs and a lot of teams, right? Like you talked about the process level sixers and the bigs point is something that I'm going to get to with my next kind of little diatribe. But to me, I didn't really mind taking three shots, three shots at it, right? And the Ben Simmons thing, I don't think anybody was arguing at the time, right? Like that that was a bad choice at number one. You know, there were some character concerns about the way he played at LSU and whatnot, but he was never, he was never going to be a star because of his defense. That wasn't the, the assumption about him coming out of college as, as far as I can remember, right? And he, he did work or at least commit to that side of the ball which, which, you know, that's why Ben Simmons is such a maddening case for me, right? Because I assume that if you're willing to make the difficult choice and, and say, I'm going to become an all NBA, like literally one of the, the glueiest and, and most enveloping defensive players in the league, to me, that would, that would indicate some sort of commitment to winning basketball, right? Commitment to the things that you need to do to fit well with other players, to make an impact. And, and, so let's set aside his special case, right? But, you know, to bring it back to the Okafor and, and uh, oh, who was the third, the third big taken? New Orleans Noel. New Orleans right? I think for the way that that process turned out, I still think, you know, that Sam Hinkie's idea and conceit was correct. I personally, that you keep swinging until you get the Joel and B. And it, it doesn't matter because I think in that case, right? Like he proved that he was so much better than those other guys. And, it, you know, they, they, they dumped them or they, they traded them away or they, they let them walk. And I don't think that personally hurt them. 
as a franchise, right? And so I think the question then becomes for the Cavs, right? Like Garland and Sexton, I don't believe were top three picks. I, I believe one was at least a, a fifth or sixth pick, right? And so maybe the answer to that in, in my kind of warped sense of this whole thing is that they didn't tank hard enough, right? Or, or, or they, didn't, they didn't just have access to the quality player, which is not really in their control. But I, I come out of it kind of thinking that, you know, unless you've got that generational dude or, or you know, you pick him in, in the second round and Nikola Jokic, 40, 41st overall, and you, you see something in those guys and, and have a framework where they can develop and grow, unless that's the thing, I think, I don't know that, that teams are actually as smart as they think they are and neither are we, right? Like we don't, we don't know. And so that's why I, I, I tend to think that it's kind of like index funds, right? We all think that we're, we're better traders, you know, if we don't have access to, you know, even without inside information. And yet the, the 10% return that you get from putting your boring money in a Borego mutual fund usually ends up beating people who, who try risky strategy, right? And so I think that's my my equivalent of saying I would trust the wisdom of the crowd, you know, and say, let's take the best player available or let's take the guy with the highest upside and just go from there. Yeah. So before I give you my counter argument, can I give you my yes. super quick totally fake, totally petty uh, theory about why Ben Simmons is great at defense. Yes, please, please. I am. I'm yes. I'm all in. I know, you know what I mean? Cause I know you were one of the biggest perpetrators of this on the planet, but you know, when you have something that is like super important for you to do, like, like <laughs> the number one thing on your to-do list <laughs> that is bolded and underlined and like oh, a very God, important yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're like, all right, I'm going to be super productive today and I'm going to do this thing. And then you uh, clean your house, do your laundry, take your car to the car wash, organize your sock drawer. Uh, Hold up, hold up. Are you suggesting that Ben Simmons procrastinated his way way into becoming an all-NBA defender? Is Is that what I'm hearing? I'm saying that the shooting thing became such a powerful mental block for Ben Simmons Mm, that he was saying, you know, like shooting, it's my number one thing I need to work on. It's the number one thing I need to do on my to-do list. What else can I do? that I can still be count as productive, but not okay. actually be working on shooting. And that became why he became good at defense. I, I don't know if I agree that that's what happened, but I resonate so hard. Like you have just tapped into the, the essence of my soul as a human being that I, I, I don't even know what to say to that. It's just like, wow. Yeah. And so we don't have to spend any more time on that totally (laughs) fake, not actually like, I would not bet my life on that, but I I would not be surprised if that was what the the truth was. So let's, let's stay, let's stay on the, on the topic of the calves here uh, to, to go on, on, on what, what you're saying. Yeah. Darius Garland, I think was the fifth overall pick. Colin Sexton, I believe was the eighth overall pick. They didn't get the lottery luck in those years or the exact right odds to end up in a spot with the top three picks. And normally a guy who ends up being the uh, best player on a championship team, all at first team, all NBA guy is drafted in the first two or three picks. You know, occasionally it starts to drip down a little bit, but normally those guarantees are those first three guys. 
So if I'm the Cavs, if I'm Kobe Altman, the general manager of the Cavs, and I'm looking at my team and I'm like, okay, I have Colin Sexton, Darius Garland, two guards that are still trying to figure it out. Isaac Okoro, uh, who has some real potential to be a lockdown wing. Jarrett Allen, Larry Nance Jr., uh, perennial like oh that guy uh guy Seti osman right if i'm looking at that my only chance for the Cavs to be a uh high uh playoffs championship contending team here pretty soon is if colin sexton and darius garland work out they've invested too much draft capital in those guys for uh them to pivot at this point and if they pivot away from those guys they're essentially just adding another year onto their rebuild if they're punting on colin sexton and darius garland they are punting on a year of their rebuild leading to another more year for a more franchise right so yeah. if you're kobe altman do you kick the can down the road do you say in another year we'll hopefully get some pieces that might fit together better or do you keep trying to make trades like the Jarrett Allen trade? Keep trying to make trades like the, the Larry Nance trade, trade yeah. to fill in along the edges. Draft a guy like Evan Mobley who fits with your core and cross your fingers, pray to God that either Sexton or Garland ends up figuring it out at some point. And in order for them to do that, you have to surround them with players that make sense. And if you start to surround them with players that don't make sense, then you are going to be stunt. Like I said earlier, stunting all of their growth. So basically is it riskier to draft a risky upside player or is it riskier to say, I'm putting my eggs in this basket and I'm going to try to make this basket the best looking basket that I can put together. Sure. I I think that's a really astute point. I think, to me, the, the answer to that question is, are we talking about Kobe Alton's job security? Are we talking about their championship odds rolling average for the next 20 years? You know? Um, and so I think you, you, that's a fantastic point from Altman's perspective, right? Like, I think he's not long for that job. And so he probably has to commit to improvement and internal growth. I am not convinced that a backcourt that has two players that are, you know, close to, to six foot or at least, you know, under six foot four can ever really win. That's just, you know, one of those beliefs that I have. I, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this on the pod or not, but I, I have been on the breakup Damon CJ train for three or four years, basically. And not because I, you know, think those guys are a bad fit or I think they're not good because I, 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 I love them and I think they're, fantastic at what they do and i think they complement each other really well but i just think they're just not tall enough that's literally it's literally it right it's like i think defensively we see the playoffs become a who is your worst and second worst defender and unless you've got the patrick beverly's of the world at point guard which you know gives you problems on offense or, or chris paul back in his days of being a guy who could stonewall bigger players because he was so strong unless that's the truth i think you know, small guards, two of them just, it, it dooms you. And so that's, I guess, where I'm coming from when it, when it goes to, you know, should they blow that up? Uh, your point about sunk costs is, is valid, right? And I guess that's where I kind of 
see the other side of that term, right? It's, it's their sunk cost. You've already spent the assets. The only thing you can do is, is to, you know, look forwards. And so that's where I, I'm coming from. To, to kind of continue on this, this height point, um, this is the other, you know, foundational belief I have basically of the draft nowadays, you know, with the way the league is. And that's, you should take a wing for the top 20 picks. You should just, you should only take a wing. Like stop, you know, unless unless somebody has an outlier skill that's just so absurd, you know, Lonzo or sorry, Lamelo is technically a point guard, but he's wing sized, and he's got this passing that is just unreal. Uh, you know, Isaac, uh, sorry, Onyeka Nkongwu, who was taken a couple of years ago by the Hawks, seems like a really good player, but I think I would rather have some people who are drafted drafted after him and who are wing size, you know? And so you talked earlier about the Hawks and how they've surrounded Trey with, with winning players. And I think the reason that I like those moves, the, the Cam Reddish, the DeAndre Hunter pick, especially the Kevin Herter, because they're wings, you know, this is a wing league. It is at the, at the, the top, you know, we, we just named off how many guys and, and Giannis is a big at this point, but he came up in the league. He was drafted as a wing. He plays, with a, a rather perimeter-oriented game sometimes, and, and that kind of switched in these playoffs. But all those other guys, LeBron, as he gets older, he's kind of a four, but, you know, a perimeter guy. Uh, sorry, Kawhi Leonard, perimeter wing, right? Like, Steph kind of being the outlier there because he has this shooting that is literally once ever, right? And so that that's my kind of fundamental thing and watching the Warriors draft Wiseman, which... I've had mixed emotions about because I think he's a really exciting prospect. I think he could go places and I really wish we would have picked Anthony Edwards even, right. Or someone, someone else who's wing size, because I just think that whether it's, whether it's the people who decide the championship or the people who are around them, whether it's, you know, Sean Livingston, it's a, it's a Boris Diaw to pull a name out of the hat, right. It's like, it's, it's those wing depth. You can never have enough of them. Basically it's, is how I view the NBA today. And so I think if I was a GM, I would just pick wings because if you can run a lineup with five guys who switch and are able to protect the rim enough, you do that every time. You pick the people who are closer to that 10 foot hoop. I don't know. That's my that's my rant about about wings. How do, how does that resonate with you? Uh, I want to I I want to ask a, a question uh, to you here. Uh, to sort of like to try try to like test I I mean to test like um a little bit of what you mean by wing. Do you mean okay like a three and D archetype? And like I would even include like obviously this is a total disservice to them and their overall impact, but I would include a guy like Kawhi or Paul George as archetypes of the three and D area where they had that outside shooting capabilities, incredible de- defensive capabilities, but of course they also have the, the playmaking and whatnot. So are you imagining that three and D archetype or uh, do players who kind of stretch towards like Draymond green still qualify for you as wing how where 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 what what's okay. what are yeah. you looking for um so i think this this theory of mine and it's it's not entirely my own you know there's some some writers that i that i listen to who kind of espouse this 
uh, Ethan Sherwood Strauss, and, uh, you know, to mention one. Um, and their theory is based on this idea that like power forwards have disappeared. We've, we've basically gotten to the place where you have to play only one center at a time, right? Like twin towers and even, even you know, like a traditional power forward combined with a center or, or, a, or a mobile power forward who's really powerful and sized, if they can't switch on the perimeter, if they can't defend quicker guards, you know, if they, if they, if they can be played off the floor, they're just, they're going to be, you know, that's what we've come to. The league has gotten efficient at finding weaknesses. And so I was listening to a podcast today talking about the Pelican situation because they just made this big trade today and they're talking about Zion and, you know, how we just swapped uh, Adams uh, for Valanchunas and how that Valanchunas is a little bit better of a fit, but he's still not really a shooter. And so I, I think that really, you know, reaffirm this to me is that you can only have one non-shooter on your team basically to be successful when the Warriors had Draymond Green in that closing lineup he was the only non-shooter at least non-league average shooter and it, it worked wonderful this past year this past couple of years when it's been a poo platter around him and, and he's had multiple you know Wiseman or whoever else on the team offense doesn't work and then on defense right like you, you just you get sped off the court because these guys can't keep up and so there's also the, the question of like jaron jackson is he a four he's a five and he's i don't know what would you think i think he's going to be a five someday that's just people who are tall kind of only kind of really only play one specific spot in court and so that makes guys who are somewhere between six nine six five and six nine somewhere in there or at least the ability to guard people who are bigger and smaller than them that's what I'm looking for. So it doesn't have to be that they they play three and D or, or they whatever. It's, it's it's switchability, or it's at least you know versatility. Maybe not literally in a switchable scheme, right? But it's it's the ability to to take multiple challenges and put pressure on the other team on offense in multiple ways. Does that make sense? It does. And so, uh, bas- basically, what what I'm what I'm hearing you you say is that you are looking for. Um, the hyper athletic wing defenders with a shot that does not clog up the uh, offense. And that because those got guys are not unicorns in the sense that we've been using them in, in the NBA, uh, maybe 50% of wings that are drafted, these hyper athletic wings are able to uh, have a shot developed so that's why you would have your first 20 picks of the draft all be the hyper athletic wings with the ones shooting with the best shooting stroke at the top and then the not as good shooting stroke uh a little bit would you say that's correct i I think that's true and that's not to say that you know you have to be a lights out shooter you just have to be good enough right and if you've got ball handling or playmaking or scoring ability that's obviously prioritized over you know this other stuff but i just think how often do we see now that you know really good veteran big men are available for nothing you know unless your name is deandre ayton and you're giving the friends tax right like there's there's just a plethora of of big dudes who can do the rim runner stuff or who can do the defensive zaza pachulia to to throw in another warriors reference sorry vance um like those guys are just, they're, they're available now. It's like the running backs of the NFL or the, the running backs of the NBA. And so 
I would rather have so many more bites at the apple of finding a guy who could be a Paul George or a Kawhi, right? Who, you know, I don't think either of them had the the expectation that they would reach this level of, you know, primary ball handler or like shot creator for the team, but that was in there somehow. And it was, it was earthed out. And that's why I think we see Cade Cunningham at the top of this draft to bring it, you know, back to reality and, and why Jalen Green is, is higher and might even go ahead of, of Evan Mobley, even though a lot of people say, you know, Mobley projects to be a more complete player and, and might have a higher ceiling one day. It's people are, people are starting to realize that, you know, that combination of size and other abilities, it's, it's, it's optimal, I guess. Yeah. So when I, when I hear, when I hear what you're saying, I, uh, I resonate with a lot of the, the points you're making about what is required to be successful in uh, today's NBA and obviously drafting someone who's at six foot is going to present difficulties in what they are able to do defensively. But what you're putting forward, I connect honestly a bit more to like with the phasing out of big men from the draft that the lat like sure, 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 picks, sure. picks the, uh, through even throughout the, the last decade, lotteries have been dominated by big guys who have amounted to, jack shit you know yep yeah, and, exactly exactly uh, so i mean uh i i hesitate to call evan mobley a, a traditional big he's seven foot tall but he's almost yeah, a little bit not. more of a uh has like a bam at a bio style distributor with uh shooting ability from the outside and then in the lottery, there's like only one other big, like a traditional big that people are looking at, Alperen Sengun, right? This European guy who just won the Turkish League MVP. And there's not going to be another, besides those two guys, there's not going to be another big drafted in the first 20 picks, right? So which I think it, is good. Yeah, which, which is good based off of everything that you just laid out for with uh, the NBA, the style of play in the NBA today. Now, the one thing where I will maybe push back a little bit in terms of like yes, wings, so to speak, is I think that beyond bigs, the what we've seen as well from this the past few years in the NBA that I think you'll agree with me on is the blending of positions. Mm-hmm. Positions yeah. are starting to matter a lot less because like, Devin Booker is a guard, but he's 6'5". You know, not like a classic 6'2 guard. Kyle Lowry is a, a shorter guy, 6'3", I believe, and is well-documented to be very thick and not a, <laughs> an easy an easy pushover on, on the defensive side. So I, I don't... Kyle, th- Lowry's, Kyle Lowry's six feet tall is six foot tall thank you but uh with uh with he's a thick guy he's strong he's a a defensive bulldog you know i don't think that guards are going to disappear no i think that's why there's like a lot of positionless basketball i think maybe the first there's a good chance that the first seven eight nine picks are all going to be like Evan Mobley and a bunch of combo guards, you know? So yeah. I, I uh, like the, the wing like focus itself. 
I think is also potentially has the chance of uh, dropping a little bit more towards the uh, extinction of bigs because the days that a Josh Jackson drafted to the Suns a few years ago at number three, the days that he's going to go at number three are uh, much smaller. Like Jonathan Kuminga is the only guy in the lottery that I think projects as like a similar type of player to him. And he has gone from like fourth on a lot of guys, big boards down to like being drafted eighth, ninth or 10th in a lot of mock drafts, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, these combo guards, I think the presence of them in, in these drafts, the Jalen green, Kane Cunningham, Jalen Suggs at the top, but also like the Scotty Barnes, James Boo Knight uh, sort of guys are also going to be like really important, I think. No, totally. And so I, I think that's that's on me for failing to define my term correctly. For me, Devin Booker is basically a wing. You know, a wing, it's, it's, it's there's point guards, there's wing or point guards, there's fives, big men, and there's everybody else. And everybody else is a wing now, you know? Got it. And if you're if you're a, a power forward who's just not quick enough, you're a big man. Marquise Chris, right? Like he's a he's a guy who came in as a as a forward, as a three point jacker, as you know somebody who was a shot creator a little tiny bit, and he's six nine maybe, and he's only found success in the NBA playing the center position, which to me you know it's still I'm jarring to watch that guy who I who I love you know absolutely love uh, do that, and so. I, I thank you for, you know, helping me clarify this, this position. And I think, yeah, that, that's kind of what I meant. Um, is there any, you know, big topic you want to hit? Because I have one more thing I'll try and keep very short. Give it to us. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is my other, other little rant. And it's something that I've kind of developed over the last couple of years. And it's the idea that, that feel quote unquote feel, you know, basketball IQ, but, but especially like, the ability to to read the game and react and play at speed, you know, and play with fluidity and, and, and feel comfortable in a modern game and against even greater athleticism and whatnot. I think that ability is the single hardest thing to improve on even harder than shot shooting, you know, like you can practice shooting in an empty gym and that will to some degree translate, but it's really hard to get smarter or at least, you know, not even, not even like book smart, but, but ability to perceive the whole court ability to, you know, perceive the pass and play, you know, so playmaking is tied in all this is kind of, you know, make the rotation on defense. It's to me, that's all kind of summarized by feel, you know, you just, you see guys who, who get it right. Like who think the game or, or instinct and anticipate the game at a higher level than everybody else. And I think those guys are, are supremely undervalued. My, my prototypical example of this was my favorite player on the draft last year was Tyrese Halliburton. I, I just yes. loved his, his tape. I thought his shot was funky and it still went in and he had range and I was like this guy is gonna be good and you can check my Twitter if, if you anybody out there you know debate I was I was shouting it from the top of the hills and so I, I really wanted the Warriors to take it I would have been okay if they took him in second because I thought you know both he and LaMelo too right had this this intrinsic ability to, to understand basketball understand somebody to see the things before they happened to to just to play the game really really well and so I think that's a situation where I, I look at some of these players in the draft and I say, I don't really care if they, you know, so long as they have the requisite athleticism to apply what they can see and think and do, you know, they have a, the wingspan to disrupt the, the pass or whatever. Give me the guy who people look at funny 
but thinks the game super highly because that's the guy that I say, even if they don't end up being the, you know, the, the dominant top, you know, all NBA first team level player, they are the ones who are going to stick and be meaningful contributors and, and carve out a 10 NBA, 10 year NBA career. And so I, I, I just, I believe and feel above all else, basically, because I think you can't teach that, you know, it's just one of those things that you try and take a dumb player, myself included, like it's, it's one of my foibles as an athlete is I, I don't always anticipate things, but, and I've tried to get better at it and it just doesn't really happen. So I don't know. That's, that's my other kind of, kind of thing. I could not agree with you more. And you did a much better job of it at the very beginning of the, this podcast. Uh, I talked about like well, when I what I'm looking for in a draft, and I listed uh, players that make their teams better. And one of my adjectives for that was like motor. And I'm re- like motor was absolutely the wrong phrase for me to use in that moment. I believe because like for me, what, what how I personally define motor is not just runs hard up and down the court. For me, it means running hard and intentionally up and down the court. It's exactly what you're what you're breaking down here as like a, you can't teach feel. It's unteachable. And from a the from little ten year old AAU or to uh, the NBA level, there are going to be players out there who are successful because they are. Uh, a head above literally a head above everyone else in how they process what happens in the game right it it happens in youth sports happens in professional sports so i i could not agree with you more on this and so this this brings me to a, a player in this draft that i've been wanting to discuss with you all day and i think now is the perfect time Ooh. to discuss it. okay because um out, out of all the guys that are projected to go high up in the lottery, one of the guys who has been lauded by many for his feel of the game is Florida State forward Scotty Barnes. Okay. And so like, I don't know how much you've uh, looked into Scotty Barnes, but a lot of guys are uh, projecting him as having like, a Draymond Green style ceiling where he is a playmaking threat, a facilitator, a hard, smart defender, both on ball and off ball, constantly hustling, constantly competing. And he checks off all of the feel boxes that you and I uh, think are super, super important. But he has the biggest red flag that you mentioned earlier in a uh, scouting report, which is uh, if he can end up shooting, he will be like a super, superstar. Like if he can't develop his shooting, how much will his playmaking matter? He's projected to go to Orlando at number five. Orlando is not exactly the mid-decade uh, Warriors who can surround Draymond Green with a warrior with a lineup of death, right? There are other non-shooters they have here. He shot uh, 30% from three and 60% from three free throw in college. So, Riley, what do you make of a uh, player 
who checks off all of our feel boxes and so horribly misses on the other category that we have deemed irreplaceable in this draft? Sure. I think that's a great question. Uh, I have to, I have to admit that I am literally pulling up Scotty Barnes's uh, breakdowns. I'm not sure if anybody out there has been to the, the YouTube channel by Adam Spinella. He does the, the best ones that I've seen. Of, you know, it's not just highlights, right? It's like, these are the strengths, these are the weaknesses. These are examples of all these different kind of applications of weaknesses. So I'm, I'm trying to madly cram a little bit as, as you're talking. So with all that prerequisite, you know, admission of, of lack of knowledge out of the way, I think it's a really interesting case because it, it's like you said, it puts these kind of two fundamental beliefs in, in stark contrast. And I guess where I come down on it is that there are how many players in the ABA can get away with basically being a zero on one end of the court. And I would, I would say that it's, it's almost none. You know, Draymond is one of those few who he made the Warriors go in 2016 in the sense that, him being an actual stretch four was, was you know, he shot 40% that one, one random year and they look where they went, right. They, they won the most regular season games of all time. And now he's literally, he can't, he can't shoot layups. He can't do anything. It's, it's maddening to watch. And he's still, you know, he still passes, he'll play, but he's basically become the lead ball handler for the Warriors because otherwise, if you, if you don't put the ball in his hands, he's doing nothing or even, you know, negative. And so to me, he's such a special case. And, and the question is, you know, if Scotty Barnes can reach that level of what I believe to be one of the greatest defenders of all time. Yeah. Then he can stick, but otherwise, I, I don't know, man. And so I think the way I kind of would resolve that conflict is that in order to make it the NBA, I feel like you have to have a, a requisite level of skill and at least both ends, you know, and then, then we can talk, right. You have to have been able to score more than five points in in a you know in in your college average more than five points in a college career right you just you have to be better than people at lower levels to some degree and everything i've heard about scotty barnes is that his offense is just it's it's non-existent i think i think he he averaged something like 10 points in college which you know it's not nothing it's not nothing but it's that's really not a lot because Everybody else is going to be the guy who was the best in their AAU team, the best in their high school, pretty good in college, and now they're kind of average in the NBA, right? And so for him to already be struggling so much to contribute on one end, that's where I think, you know, does he does he cut off the opportunities, his own opportunities for playing time by being such a negative that he can't demonstrate his, his just monstrous physical and mental tools on the other end. I don't know. How, how do you see that? Because you clearly have I put more thought into this and, and watched it a lot more. Yeah. I mean, Scotty Barnes uh, is, is a guy, he played point guard in college and okay. uh, we, it, he, so because of that, he has uh, a, a little bit of this, of this reputation as a guy who can uh, make plays in the open court uh, could uh, take advantage of being on either side of dribble handoffs and uh, short rolls to the rim. He's a, he's six seven, and so on offense he uh, does sort of like give off vibes of Bam Adebayo and Ben Simmons, 
and in in some of what he can do in in terms of the open court and a little bit of his playmaking and I don't uh, and uh, people are sort of using that as beneficial to him like oh he like can make Bam Adebayo and Ben Simmons are both uh all NBA caliber players Bam didn't get there this year but I think uh like he he has that that sort of potential that sort of ceiling when things are breaking right for the heat which was not this past year for them but that scares me. And like, he's basically being like chalked in as like going five or six, you know, after the consensus top four guys, Scotty Barnes is uh, being, being uh, he's expected to be Orlando's Orlando's pick and the Orlando magic have been really good at drafting long guys with questionable offensive games. And yeah, in a, in a draft like this, I don't want to be drafting offensive question marks as much. There's a chance he might become a guard version of Draymond Green, but it, it also goes against a lot of my uh, draft for fit things, where if you're trying to get the most out of Markel Fultz, trying to get the most out of uh, Mo Bamba, trying to get the most out of Jonathan Isaac, it's it's worrisome. It's worrisome. Yep. Yeah, and I think to me, it comes down to like those players, like the all, you know, defensive kind of only players, they work, but not as the ball handlers and not as wings. They work as centers. Like what were people basically trying to do to Ben Simmons? They were trying to turn him into a power forward on offense. That's what doc and, and, uh, um, uh, Brett Brown were, were, you know, forced to do, you know, he had to be in the dunker spot. He had to be a roller. And I think that's, there can only be, like we talked about earlier, right? There can only be so many people like that on the court. And if you're not able to lock down the other, the other team's big dude who does that same thing, then I'm not sure that you, you have a place, right? And so I, I, I fully, honestly, because of this conversation, I expect Scotty Barnes to become a monster and prove us both any sort of doubt wrong, right? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like we're, we're, we're jinxing him to, to have an amazing career, which, you know, hopefully good for him. But I, I just, yeah, I, I think it, it's really difficult to see that player without, you know, improvement, which is totally possible. And maybe that's just where this comes from, right? Is maybe he's a really good worker. That's everything I've heard, you know, um, is that he's just very committed and relentless and, and good head in his shoulders. And so I think that does bode well. And so maybe, you know, maybe he just, he's able to work out of it. And, and then this is, doesn't even matter, right? It's not even a question. And maybe that's justifies this, this pick, but so that's where the, the question of like upside versus how realistic is that progress, you know, like how, and, it, and if, if it doesn't work out, then, then does he have a utility? Um, because, you know, let's compare him to, he's not nearly the same player, but, but uh, Matisse Thibel, you know, he's, he's basically a, a one-way player, but at least he can catch and shoot to some degree, right? Like at least, you know, he hits an occasional thing or he does, he does things on offense that make that just astounding defense worth it. Can Scotty Barnes do that? I, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't watched enough or, or know enough to know, but that's, to me, that's the, the main question. Yeah. 
do you have any other well, main uh, draft points you want to you want to touch on? No, no. I, so I mean, what I was going to say is we've been we've been rambling about this for quite a long time. So what I want to do now is just the, you know we hinted at this earlier. Let's make some predictions for fun because I think that's that's really fun to to see people put their thoughts out there and and you know, screw Brian Windhorst for for being the no fun and and preserving his dignity and at the sake of our entertainment, right? He's famous for not wanting to ever make a prediction about how a playoff series can go. So I was I was thinking we should run down, I don't know, are there any prospects that you really think are gonna hit or you're convinced are gonna be duds? Like what's what's your what's your sense? And do you have any basically hot takes or or, or just things that you, you really strongly want to talk about? Um I I mean, based off of a lot of what we have uh talked about here, uh I would be remiss to say that I do not believe in Jonathan Kaminga. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like okay. he was absent of the feel and of the shooting with his uh, time with the uh, G League Ignite team. You get to see a lot, all sorts of stuff like tantalizing athlete, but raw skills needs years yeah. of seasoning. Uh, a patient team might, might want to look for this guy. I, I'm worried about him, so I, I, I would want to stay away from him. Well, and that's bad news because it, it sounds like there's a real chance that he uh, he ends up on the Warriors, uh, which, oh, well, either way, we'll see. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good take. I like the take. Anybody else? Uh, let, let's go one-on-one. Let's, let's, I want to hear okay. one from you. Okay. Um, in, in the other way, the only thing that I feel very confident in and this is probably a case of anchoring, which is the, the idea that the first information that you see is something you become emotionally attached to and you find hard to move on. But the first kind of breakdown video I watched was of Franz Wagner, uh, Mo Wagner's brother and a you know big wing out of Michigan. And I just think he hits all the field boxes that I talked about earlier. You know, he's got quote unquote deceptive athleticism as a white dude. The way he moves his feet is is really, I think, really, really special. Um, and so I'm I'm convinced that's who I, I would love for my team to take. And I'm I'm convinced that he is going to be at least a competent role player, you know, or even even better, like a really truly impactful team defender going forward. Because I think the way that he rotated, the way he blocked shots, the way he moved his feet against quick guards and everybody, it was it was really impressive. And I think he's underrated. And, and that's who I'm, I'm willing this year to kind of or at least become very, very invested in and root for no matter where he goes. Yeah. He, he checks my boxes of the guy who makes his teammates better. And it seems like all yep. of his skills yeah. are transferred. Jonathan Charks wrote a great article on the ringer uh, about how all of his skills that made his teammates better in college are skills that will probably make his teammates better in uh, the NBA. And uh I, I'm ex- also excited to see where uh, where he ends up. Uh, my next my next take that's uh, it's not quite less a, a prospect. It's a little bit less of a prospect take, but my take mm. is that the Warriors will make both of their selections on draft night at seven and fourteen without completing a trade to uh, another team. Yeah, that's certainly how it sounds like it's going to happen, which to me is not the end of the world, but you have, you have angered a, a 
fanatical subsection of, of Warriors fans by making that prediction because they kind of believe that if they were to do that, it would be the end of the dynasty. It would be the end of any sort of contention and the end of, of uh, you know, Steph's prime, which is really what we're talking about whenever we, we mention what Warriors fans care about right now. Um, what, what, what makes you say that? Or, or, you know, why do you have that impression? Because it doesn't seem like there is a good fit for a trade out there. Yep. Yeah. It, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like there's a team that I. I don't think Bradley Beal is going to end up requesting a trade. Oh, interesting. Okay, I. I, don't I, am, think... I am kind of expecting him too. I don't know. Are I you? Don't know why? Yeah, and I based mean, on nothing besides gut. Yeah, he's he's stuck with the Wizards without making a trade request for this entire time. He's molded his future every single summer, and he's he's doubled down every single summer. I think it's there true, are still you have to stars that. out there that will play through their contracts without demanding a trade. I have respect for him for doing that and uh, expect that to be his path. Okay. Okay. I feel it. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with my next pick if that's, if that's okay. Um, I, I am really high on Jalen Suggs too. You know, I think this is, uh, again, you know, to try and check some of my cognitive biases, this is definitely just from watching him in the playoffs. Um, but I, or sorry, the, the, the NCAA tournament. Um, but I, I also, you know, saw some clips of him early in the year and I was like, just the way this guy sees everything and, you know, the way he leverages his athleticism, the way he play makes, the way he does the, the little things. I was like, I think he's going to be a winning, winning, winning player. And so that's another guy that, you know, I, I'm not sure now that I've heard all the talk about what Kate is and what Kate can be that I would take him number one overall. But I, I really think that people who are down on Suggs are going to be proven wrong, and I, I believe in his his quote unquote feel very very strongly. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's good proof that NBA teams can learn quickly, and they're learning from the Tyrese Halliburton pick of last year. Yeah, I think Jalen Suggs yep. is a bit more of a high uh, a high flyer guy. Yeah, uh, than yeah. Uh, Halliburton was last year, but is one hundred percent the similar archetype of smart guard who's going to make his team better for the next 10 or 15 years. And he has the, he has the, you know, the little bit of height and a little bit of wingspan and the athleticism for sure to like, to make that work. Right. It's not, you know, here's another guy. I don't know what you think about Davion Mitchell, but I'm just, I'm not sure because he's six feet tall, you know? So are, are you, are you, uh, are you high or low on uh, Davion Mitchell? I don't know what to think anymore. That's honestly where I come down on it is, you know, I I tend to develop opinions that are just, you know, counter whatever the popular opinion is for no good reason besides I enjoy taking that position. And so as the kind of feeling on him is oscillated, that's why, you know, I've been low on him and I've been high on him based on kind of just what everybody else says, which is no good way to form opinions. But I think now that, everyone's kind of settled on him falling. I'm starting to say, you know, I, I think I agree with the consensus that is his ceiling higher than Patrick Beverly? Is it, is it higher than, you know, one of those really like hounding guards? I, I don't think so. So why, you know, why would you give up or, you know, spend a really high pick on, on that player? What's I, I mean, I, I, I haven't done my, 
the homework on Davion Mitchell that a Warriors fan may have. Uh, but and I don't have the anti six foot tall. Uh, yeah, yeah, bias yeah. bias that you have. So, uh, if his shot is for real, I think that's, yeah, that's I thing. think that uh, which he shot forty five percent on three pointers last season. If that is a, a measurement of actual improvement, I think he could be exactly what the Warriors need, which is more playmaking, especially off the bench. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, if we draft him, I won't. I won't cry about it, but I also, I don't think I'll be stoked until of course he proves me wrong and, and is the, you know, one of the most solid players out of the trap, because of course that's just how these things go, you know? Yeah. Who's, who's your next, who's your next player? Uh, Usman Garuba. Yeah. Yeah. Is going mm-hmm. to be drafted mm-hmm. outside of the lottery. Oh. And is okay. going to end up a top eight talent from this draft. Full agreement. Full agreement with that. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I don't know. Sorry, unless you have no, keep, things to keep, say about keep that. coming. Keep coming. Yeah. So what this to me comes down is like when one skill is just so far from out. I mentioned this earlier, right? And this is why I'm I love Corey Kispert from this draft too. He's shooting so far an outlier. Garuba's defense, as people have said, pick and roll defense, just so far an outlier that I think it doesn't matter. Anything else about him doesn't matter. Right. It's just that is going to work. And so I'm, I'm convinced I'm on the Garuba train and I would, I would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't help the Warriors as much, but I would be stoked if they took him because I think that would mean that they've seen what I see and, and see the potential there, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you uh, mention uh, Corey Kispert as well. Cause apparently he just had like a really horrible workout with the Pacers. Oh, interesting. And, and, uh, but apparently like he was a, a heavy favorite for the Pacers before he had this, uh, this poor workout. So I don't know what to be, I I don't know if there's been very much of a good history of people having bad workouts and having that not mean something. Yeah. But, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether that sort of, uh, it works out because if his three point shooting is what it is, he seems like a six foot six JJ Redick. Yep, that's exactly what I think he is. And so, from that's, I guess, this is not like a huge deal, but these are other kind of smaller opinions that I hold up with the draft is that don't trust aberration years. And that's why I think I'm low on Damian Mitchell, is just that 45% coming from nowhere to me feels fluky as fuck. Uh, to put it ineloquently um, and then also don't trust workouts right like the tape I think matters should matter more than you against an empty gym because how many horror stories have we heard about right this dude wasn't that uh, New Orleans well or Joel Nick, like right? Nick, Nick Stauskas Nick Stauskas with his with you. his jump shots at his driveway yeah right like that that's where you make dumb dumb decisions because you you treat a small sample size against nothing right like in, against no competitive reality is as too important so yeah i would for the pacers sake i hope i hope they don't you know put too much stock into it and i i guess and that's the other reason that i believe in Kisper is because his shooting of course is so consistent right like it's not like it came you know i don't know he just he's he's been that dude right so 
that's one of those things where I feel pretty confident that I would bet he's going to be a high 30s, low 40 shooter consistently. All right, Back give us give us for a second. Give oh. us a oh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to, I wanted to say like you know, is there anything there like when you say he becomes a top eight talent, are you projecting growth? Or are you just projecting, you know, the things that he's good at right now, or like really, really, truly good at right now, are gonna still be so good that they'll carry him through? Um, I, I'm I'm projecting a a little bit of growth. The dude defends how he defends, and he's only 19. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think that having someone any at being six eight, I think he's like two thirty. Like I think he could be a uh, an ideal uh, small ball center in a few years in this league. Someone who could guard one through five, no problem. And uh, if if he's able to improve his handle a little bit, he stretches up into Bam out of bio territory. If he's able to uh, improve his uh, shooting a little bit, then gosh, that would be, that'd be a problem. I I could definitely see some like a Paul George or Kawhi style growth from him would not be a, would not be the most surprising thing to me. I'm I'm fully on board with you. Um, Sorry. What were you asking before, before I cut you off? Now, I, I was just going to say, give us one more player uh, prediction okay. from you. I, yeah, I don't. Hmm. There's nothing else that I feel like super, super strongly about. Um, I guess the only other guy that I've looked at, you know, quite, quite a bit um, because he's been mentioned for the Warriors is James Buchnick. And for me, this is another case where it's just a reminder that we don't know shit basically, because I think he's one of those things where I have no idea how he's going to end up. And I think anybody who says they do is fooling themselves a little bit um, because the talent's clearly there and he does a lot of things that are really important at the NBA level. And maybe his just God awful playmaking stats were because of that UConn uh, context, right. And, and him being the only viable shot creator but there's a lot of like worrying trends right you know there's been a lot of research done about you know what your steals your steal percentage block percentage and and then assist turnover ratio like those are far more predictable than anything else about somebody whether it's 40 with 40 inch vertical or anything like those things translate to league and for him to have been that bad of a passer and for people talking about him as a guy who's supposed to create for others and like your point earlier, you know, like making people better and making teammates better. I, I, I get sketchy, sketchy vibes, I guess, about, about his ability to translate it and, and grow in that way. I love it. Give us, give us one more for you and then, then we'll wrap this thing up. Okay. Um, I think that, um, a foreign player is also going to end. Who is not Usman Garuba is also going to end up a uh, top ten player in this draft. Whether that ends up being uh, Alperen Sengun or Josh Giddy. God, I love that name. 
uh, I I think that uh, there there's still roles for guys like Alperen Sengun. Giddy himself is he who I don't know where he's gonna land in the lottery. He could be anywhere from like the Warriors at seven uh, to all the way back to the Warriors at fourteen or the. I think he doesn't Wizards. make it past the Spurs at thirteen. I think yeah. that's what I've kind of heard. He just seems like a Spurs player, doesn't he? He he does he does the Spurs do have a, a wonderful history with with foreign players, so uh, I I'd, I'd love to see something cool happen there. Nice, nice. I think that's that's a fantastic way way to wrap this up. Do you have any like closing thoughts now that we've broken down this down from every possible angle and and, and ranted and raved and and pushed back at each other, which I thought was was really fun and, and worthwhile for once. No, I I think I'm good. Actually, I would love to hear uh in in your dream scenario mm. as a Warriors fan, what what happens on on Thursday okay. lead up to Thursday? Yeah. Um a dream scenario is obviously one of the top 4 guys falls to them at 7. I think there's no way in hell that happens, but dream scenario, they, they, they get one of those top four guys at seven and then, you know, uh, a Wagner, a, uh, uh, Chris Duarte, uh, Trey Murphy, one of these, you know, pretty, or even Corey Kispert, like one of these proven shooters who, who might have some switchability happens at 14. That would be great. Um, ideally, ideally they trade the picks away and get Bradley Beal. Like that's, you know, but I think that kind of goes with that state. So, but in a more realistic situation, um, you know, if they take Moses Moody, who's the guy that I think there's been the most smoke about um, from at least local beat repliers and, and from, you know, Sam Bassini and, and people that I trust, I think that would be an okay kind of situation. I, I really do hope that they, they stick with this idea of, you know, an upside guy at seven and a four, you know, a, a, a literal plug and play dude at, at 14. Um, I'm very well aware of this, this notion that no rookie has played meaningful minutes in like the last 10 finals or something. It's just, it doesn't happen. They don't do that. And so if the Warriors do have hopes of getting there, you can't really rely on even a guy that you pick who's 24 years old and, and Chris Duarte and, and very mature, but, you, you can't expect that to help. So if they can trade the picks, obviously that's preferable and even get some mediocre veterans in here. I think that'd be fun. If they're just going to have to pick the both of them, I'd love for them to take Wagner and Kispert or Wagner and Duarte, but we'll see what happens. Those, those are my, those are my guys. And, and I don't expect that to happen, but fingers crossed, you know? Well, I love it. Nice. Nice. All righty. Well, um, to wrap up, the last thing I want to say is I fully expect to look back on this podcast in, in a year, you know, five years, and, and find that the one dude who, who really makes a difference from this draft class is somebody that we didn't even mention that I've never heard of. I just, you know, that's that's what I believe will happen because, like I said earlier, I don't think we actually know shit, even though you, if you are still listening, have, have listened to us talk about this uh, until we're blue in the face. But it was it was massively fun to break it all down with Nolan thank you for everyone who stuck around. And, and if you have feedback on any of these massively hot takes, we would love to hear them. Uh, it, it's a joy for us to record, but it's even more of a joy for us to, to get 
pushback and, and debate and, and engagement on these on these ideas and, and these crazy ramblings. So again, thank you to all the listeners out there. If you were looking for more from the Hockey Assist, Hockey Assist, new podcast episodes are hopefully dropping in the middle of the week going forward. I think that's what Noel and I have talked about as a plans and you can find them wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, we're there. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can leave a comment or review. You can also hit us up on Twitter at hockey underscore assist. Uh, and, and for Nolan, Cope, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for, for sharing your life story with us. Uh, this is Riley checking out of episode 17 of the Hockeyist. Have a, have a great week and enjoy the draft. Everybody.